0: you have a Bible, turn to uh, Revelation chapter 6. That's what we're going to be working out of today. I think there are Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. It was great to hear uh, Greg Beal tonight. Uh, I've heard about and seen before Beal's zeal. You saw it tonight? That Beal's zeal was on display tonight. So uh, Greg has written two commentaries on Revelation, and there's... Uh, there's the big one, what is it, a thousand pages? And then there's the little one, 550 pages. So, so I, I just have to say up front, probably if Greg and I disagree on anything, I repent. So, although maybe, maybe there's a couple little things we disagree on. We'll see. Well, let, let's pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would speak to us through your word, especially since it's late at night, and doubtless many in here are tired, so we pray for your spirit to come, and we pray for energy and attention, and we pray for your spirit to come and teach us, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, my favorite quote on Revelation comes from G.K. Chesterton. He humorously quipped regarding Revelation. And though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. (laughs) So I guess Greg and I are among those wild and crazy commentators. So you'll be exposed to some craziness this weekend. But Chesterton reminds us, does he? At the outset, the Revelation is a beautiful and majestic book. And better than anything that we can say to this weekend is the book itself. Reading the book of Revelation. I'll never forget when I first read Revelation. I was 17 years old. And I recognized when I read it, I recognized the sovereignty and the power and the holiness of God. And I recognized, there's a lot of things in here I don't understand, but I got the big picture from the book. I understood that it was speaking, finally, of the victory of God over evil. You know, if we talk about the big picture a little bit, and Greg helped us with that tonight, John wrote Revelation to churches facing persecution. They were tempted to compromise with the Roman emperor, with the imperium in Rome. They were tempted to compromise with society. They were tempted to cave in to the society. And John calls upon the churches, stay out of step with your culture. Stay faithful until the end. God and Christ are sovereign over the evil you face. Believers should rejoice despite the persecution and the discrimination they face. For they are assured a place, if they persevere, they are assured a place in the heavenly city. Since they've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. So if we endure until the end, we will enjoy God and the Lamb forever. So ultimately, God will vindicate those Who are his. So let's, let's read our passage tonight and I'm just going to march through it. We're not going to be turning a lot of different places. We're going to focus on Revelation chapter six. So let's hear the word of the Lord. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow. And who can stand? Before we look at chapter 6, and we're going to go fast tonight, we're not going to look at every detail, let's just think really briefly about chapters 4 and 5. In chapter 4, John is lifted to God's throne room in heaven, and he sees a magnificent vision of God on his throne. We see in this chapter that God is the sovereign ruler over all things. The church is embattled and it's suffering, and the world is opposed to the church, but God still reigns. He still rules. He rules and reigns over all things. Then in the same throne room in chapter 5, John pulls the veil back, and we see Christ as the Redeemer. John tells us, in a key word in the chapter, no one is worthy to open the seven-sealed book. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. He emphasizes, doesn't he, the word worthy. And John weeps and weeps because opening the seven-sealed book is the key to history. It's the key to our redemption. If this book isn't open there is no salvation there is no redemption but then he's told that the lion of the tribe of Judah in fulfillment of the prophecy made to David right the lion of the tribe of Judah Jesus Christ is worthy no one is worthy to conquer or overcome in heaven or on earth but this one who is the offspring of David. Here's a very interesting feature of this passage. John is told that Jesus conquers as a lion. But when he looks to see the lion, he doesn't see a lion. Instead, he sees a lamb standing as if slain. What is John telling us there? Jesus is a lion, isn't he? He is majestic. He is mighty. He is sovereign. But he conquers and wins the victory and triumphs as a lamb. He conquers and wins the victory through his suffering. He doesn't come the first time to inflict violence, but to suffer on behalf of his people. So Revelation 5, verse 9 is a key verse. Jesus is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for he was slain and by his blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So the the opening of the seals, which is key to salvation, happens through the death of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus. Sometimes people say to me, Revelation is such a weird and strange book. And I say, yes, yes. Very, very strange. It talks about things like God being the creator and Christ as the redeemer. It teaches the key to history and our redemption is the cross of Jesus Christ. Strange stuff, right? (laughs) Strange stuff. Now it's found elsewhere in the Bible, isn't it? (laughs) There's some hard things to to interpret. Yes, yes. But don't forget, it's mainstream Christian teaching we find here. What is taught here we find elsewhere in the Scriptures. So we see in chapter 6 that the seals are opened by the authority and blood of the Lamb. So I take it from the rest of Revelation that the events of history, both God's judgments and His final salvation, are disclosed in the opening of the seals. Those seals are correlated with four horses coming out. And the role of the horses echoes what we see in Zechariah chapter 1 and Zechariah chapter 6, where we see horses and chariots that patrol the earth So often, I mean, Greg said this well, didn't he? So often we don't understand Revelation because we don't read our Old Testament. We don't read our Old Testament. We don't know it well, typically. And because we don't know the Old Testament well, we struggle in interpreting Revelation. I would also suggest that the first five seals reveal what will happen throughout history from the death and resurrection of Christ until the second coming. What we see in these five seals represents all of history from the death and resurrection of Christ to the second coming. In other words, I don't believe that these seals are restricted to a final seven-year tribulation period. They characterize the whole period from the death and resurrection of Christ to his return. I would also argue that such a reading of the seals is confirmed, but I know this is debated too, but it's confirmed by Matthew 24, which is the end-time discourse of Jesus. And what I'll do is I'll I'll show you those parallels as we go tonight. Lastly, I will argue that the sixth seal is different it denotes the time of the end it it refers to the arrival of the final judgment well i've had a little bit of a long run up but my message now pretty simply has six points there's six seals there's six points so here's the first one the gospel the gospel will triumph throughout history the gospel will triumph throughout history Let's read verse 2 again. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider at a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now some think that rider on the white horse is the beast or the Antichrist, a parody of the Christ. Others think it describes war among human beings. I think both those views are possible, but I'm not convinced I think both of those interpretations are wrong for four reasons. First, I think there's no indication in Revelation that the beast or Antichrist rides on a white horse. John nowhere says that in the rest of the book. Second, war takes place with the opening of the next seal. Not this one. So third... If we take our cues from the imagery of Revelation itself, the only person who rides on a white horse in Revelation is Jesus himself. We read in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. He is called the Word of God. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. So I think... This first seal teaches us that in this present evil age, from the cross and resurrection to the end, the gospel will go out through Jesus Christ. It's a symbol, right? The gospel will go out and conquer by the authority of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean all will be saved. But it does mean that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth and some from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be saved. Fourth, I think this fits with Jesus' end-time discourse in Matthew 24. We read in Matthew 24, verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So one of the marks of this present age is the spread of the gospel to all peoples. This is happening. And it has happened. The Christian faith, praise God, the Christian faith is a worldwide religion. We have a couple from our group. They have brought the gospel to the Itutang in Papua New Guinea. And the Itutang have spread the gospel to some other tribal groups. And that has happened over and over, that story, throughout history. We can be sure of success I'm not saying everyone will believe, but the gospel has power. It will conquer. We can minister in confidence because the word of God does not return void. We should be filled in our ministries with expectancy that God will work through his word. I like the words here of the great preacher, martin lloyd jones he says possibly one of the most devastating things that can happen to us as christians is that we cease to expect anything to happen i'm not sure but that this is not one of our greatest troubles today are we expecting him do we anticipate this are we open to it Are we aware that we are ever facing this glorious possibility of having the greatest surprise of our life? God still is working. We serve a victorious God. We have a gospel that has power and converts people. We don't presume on God's grace. We don't prescribe what will happen, but we're full of confidence Because of the word of God. We expect God to work. We're confident there's power in the gospel. We serve a victorious God. And we preach a gospel that is compelling. It is the power of God unto salvation. Second. Second point, second seal. Wars will last until Jesus comes. Wars will last until Jesus comes. Verse 4. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. I think this second seal describes war. And this fits with what we read in Matthew 24, 6-8. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. It's not the consummation. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Whenever wars crop up and intensify, some start saying, this is definitely the end. But notice what Matthew says. Wars will take place, and rumors of war all through history. These aren't the indication of, necessarily of the very end of history, of the consummation of God's plan. This is the beginning of birth pangs. We have been in the end times since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They aren't the sign that the consummation of history is at hand. So what should we expect during our life on earth? Conflict between nations and wars. And the last 2,000 years, they've borne this out, haven't they? They've been characterized by war and fighting and killing. There have been small intervals of peace interspersed with wars. You know, I, I thought of this when I was preparing this. I thought of, in the United States alone, in the last 100 years, right, it's, what, 2016. In the last 100 years, World War I, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, The Gulf War, and now the wars with Iraq and Afghanistan. So many wars in in, in our own country in the last 100 years. The gospel is conquering and making progress, but war continues and brings untold heartache and suffering. Third, third, third seal, third point. Famines will last till the end of time. Famines will last till the end of time. We read in verses 5 and 6 about the opening of the third seal. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. What John describes here are near-famine conditions. A denarius is a day's wage. There is scarcely enough food if one can only buy a quart of wheat for a day's wage and three quarts of barley for the same. The sparing of the olive oil and the wine may mean that the rich continue to consume luxury items, or it may mean that the famine doesn't touch all the necessities of life. Now It's difficult to decide between these two. I, I slightly lean to the latter. But what John says here in any case fits with what we read in Matthew 24. For Jesus also predicted that there would be famines. Well, let's think about this a little bit. I, I know figures like this aren't exact, but one place I read said this. Almost half the world, over 3 billion people, live on less than $2.50 a day. At least 80% of humanity lives on less than $10 a day. Well, are those statistics exactly right? I don't know. Even if they're not exactly right, it's still evident that hunger threatens millions of people in our world. The, the times are tough. We, we can easily forget that in our culture. The suffering of the present evil age boggles our mind. I mean, we can't take it. I couldn't take it. You couldn't either. We, we can't fully take it in because it would just paralyze us. Emotionally, it's more than we can handle. We 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 all emotionally distance ourselves a little bit from this to survive, really. Now, now let me ask, say something here. Yes, f- these famines characterize this present evil age. That's the way it's going to be. But that doesn't mean, I just want to add a comment, that doesn't mean we should do nothing to help, okay? I'm not arguing that, and I don't think John's arguing that. We should work for peace, right? We should work to end hunger. We, the, the, those are noble callings. But we should also be realistic. We're not going to experience utopia on this earth. Wars and famines will be part of human life to the end of time until Jesus returns. Fourth. Fourth seal, fourth point. Death and disease reign in this present evil age. Death and disease reign in this present evil age. We see this in the fourth seal in verse 8. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. So so what we have here is sort of a catch-all, don't we? Life will be characterized by death and disease, so that one-fourth of the population Will die. And I think I think that's symbolic. A great number. Death and Hades are personified as the great enemies of human existence, and hence they're virtually here demonic forces. Life on earth is full of sorrow, isn't it? And desolation. A significant portion of the world experiences war and famine, and disease, and death. The judgment here echoes Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 21, where God says, How much more when I send upon Jerusalem, because of their sin, my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. Of course, naturally, in apocalyptic literature, and that's what we have here, Greg spoke about that well, the number isn't literal. It simply indicates that death and disease threaten a significant portion of the human race. Luke 21, which is Luke's version of what we see in Matthew 24, that's Luke's version of the end-time discourse, tells us that there will be plagues before the end comes. And hasn't that been true all through history? We can think of plagues like the bubonic plague. In the 14th century, what is called the Black Death claimed the lives of 30% of Europe. Imagine that. 30%. And disease still devastates human life today. How many have died from malaria, dysentery, flu, AIDS, Cancer And on and on it goes. When we think of human history, with the deaths of so many children, and from war and famine, there are good reasons to think. Death rules over human beings. Finally, because of our sin, death rules over human existence. Our lives are truly perilous, aren't they? They are fraught with danger. Fifth. Fifth seal. (laughs) Believers face martyrdom until the final day. What else is typical of human life before the coming of Jesus? It is the martyrdom of God's people. Let's read that passage again, Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, Holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And again, this fits with what Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 9. Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The martyrdom of God's people doesn't just take place at the consummation of history, the last seven years. It occurs all through history since the last days began with the death and resurrection of Jesus. The altar in these verses, Revelation 6, could be the altar of incense or the altar of burnt offering, where burnt offerings were sacrificed twice a day. Perhaps the blood under the altar suggests that the latter is in view, although I don't think a decision on that matter is crucial. In any case, the death of Christians is a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord their martyrdom. Revelation 20, verse 4, also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God. And John himself was also imprisoned on Patmos as he wrote this book because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The suffering of God's people has been the experience of Christians from the first century to the 21st century. No, not every Christian is put to death, but many have been put to death. More Christians were martyred in the 20th century than all previous centuries combined. I was reading recently about John Oakey. He was one of the Protestants executed by Charles II of England when Charles became king. In the restoration of the English monarchy, if you know English history, the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, Oki tried to get away so he could avoid death. He fled to the Netherlands. But Charles' agents caught up with him in the Netherlands. And they brought him back to the Tower of London to be put to death, to be hung, drawn, and quartered. And I won't describe that. It is gruesome. To imagine, as you're sitting in that tower, the death that is coming, and Oki was a strong believer Strong faith in Christ. And yet, this is what Oki said in prison. This is what he said. If I had known while I was free how close, how near I would draw to God in prison, then I would have always desired to be in prison. Isn't that amazing? Especially considering the kind of death he was about to face. Isn't that a testimony of the grace of God? Yes, God strengthens his saints if they're called upon to die. If you're called upon to die, he'll strengthen you. He's faithful. As death drew near, he sensed the sweetness and the wonder and the power of God's love and grace. God is faithful to his own. Murders of Christians don't get the headlines. Some murders of Christians are done in secret. Surely Christians are dying, and we don't even know about it. But God knows. And what do the martyrs do? They cry out for justice. They they long for God to avenge their blood. And their longing for justice is not evil. God has planted in our hearts a fierce desire that justice be done and that sentiment that sentiment is from him we will never be satisfied if those who inflict evil and death on us are not brought to justice and we see this in the prayer of the Old Testament saints as well Psalm 94 verse 3 O Lord O oh Lord, how long, how long? You see the, the, the connection to Revelation 6? How long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? Or Psalm 74, 10. How long, O oh God, is the foe is the enemy to revile your name forever? Because when the saints are killed, they're reviling God's name. The slain martyrs are given a white robe. Those in the white robes belong to God, Revelation 7, 9. I'm going to talk about Revelation 7 tomorrow. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7, 13 and 14. And also those with white garments have lived righteously, Revelation 3, 4 and 5, and Revelation 3, 18. And thus the white robe reveals that the martyrs truly belong to God, that they've lived godly lives. What well, we learn from these verses... We must not take justice into our own hands. We are to leave room, as Romans says, right, for the wrath of God. This is no different than the end of Romans 12, is it? We're to bless those who persecute us and pray for their salvation. We are to overcome evil with good. You know, when Jesus suffered, 1 Peter 2 says... When he was being reviled, have you ever been reviled? Really? Has anybody ever fiercely criticized you? Everything in you wants to strike back, and especially if you can't do anything, at least to threaten them. (laughs) It says when Jesus was reviled, he didn't threaten them, but he entrusted himself, he entrusted himself to the one who judges Righteously. He entrusted himself to God, but he didn't just say, It doesn't matter what happens to me. He didn't just say that. He said, God, you judge righteously. You judge them, finally. We could only release our enemies to God if we know that God will justly judge those who do evil and who fail to repent. We need to know that God will make everything right. Otherwise, we're going to be tempted to make it right. So the word of the Lord to those who are longing for vengeance is this. Wait. Rest. The time has not yet come when everything will be made right. There's still more to be killed before the day of judgment arrives. But that day is coming, everything will be made right. Those who have persecuted and killed God's saints who don't repent, they may, sometimes they repent, Paul repented, right? But if they persecute and kill God's saints and they don't repent, they'll face the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb. So what should we do in the meantime? We must be ready for anything. Let us give our lives entirely to God. Who knows what will happen? Maybe you'll be on a mission trip and suddenly find yourself in a situation where your life is in danger. It could happen. And who knows what will happen in our country? We don't know the future. I'm not prophesying. (laughs) I don't know either. But who knows what will happen in our lives? Are you growing passive and dull? In your relationship with God, ask the Lord to stir your heart and give you a new fire and love for Him. Ask Him to give you a fire that burns for Him. Don't be like the Ephesians who've lost their first love. Don't think that you've experienced all that you will experience of God. Don't think that. Call on Him for fresh blessing and and a fresh experience of His love and power. If you're a pastor in your church, call on God to work powerfully in your church, and it starts with you. Ask Him to make Him useful for your short time on earth, for that's our purpose here. Sixth, sixth seal, sixth point. Last point. The great day of God's wrath will come. The great day of God's wrath will come. I think what is described in the sixth seal represents the arrival of the final judgment and the end of history. Revelation isn't a narrative that tells a story from the beginning to the end. Instead, it is apocalyptic literature. John brings us in this book to the end of history many times. And then he starts over again. So the book is recursive. It's marked by re- re- recapitulation. So it's imperative to see in this, these verses especially, John uses apocalyptic and symbolic language to denote the end. Therefore, the images used must not be pressed as if they literally express what will happen at the end, I really resonated with what Greg said. I, Greg and I have the same background in what we were taught. I was taught the very same principle. Always interpret the Bible literally. It depends on what you mean by that, doesn't it? But Greg did a great job. The end, verse 12, the end is marked by a great earthquake. John uses the theme in the book of an earthquake to designate, to designate the end regularly in this book. The seventh trumpet, which is the end. You could see that if you read it. The seventh bowl, and that's also the end. They describe the final judgment and the end of history. And the seventh trumpet, chapter 11, verse 19, is marked by an earthquake. And the seventh bowl, chapter 16, verse 18, is marked by an earthquake. So the earthquake, the image of the earthquake in Revelation symbolizes that the end has come. And John also picks up the imagery of the day of the Lord in the sixth seal. The day of the Lord, as you know, is a common theme in the Old Testament prophets in many passages. And those, that day of the Lord in the Old Testament, there are even days of the Lord, they point to that final day of the Lord, the day of final judgment, and final salvation. And the language that's used in the Old Testament is symbolic and apocalyptic. The sun turns black and the moon becomes like blood. John picks up the words here from Joel. This is Joel chapter 2 verse 31. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Isaiah says about Babylon's judgment. This is Isaiah chapter 13 verse 11. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. When Egypt was judged in Ezekiel's day, we read, God will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. That's Ezekiel chapter 32 verse 7. And Jesus uses that same language about the sun and the moon being darkened in association with his coming in Matthew 24. You're probably familiar with that. And and we see this in other passages as well. The falling of the stars is also typical apocalyptic language. It isn't necessarily literal. Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4 says, All the stars of the heaven will fall like leaves from a vine, and as leaves fall from a fig tree. And all the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. What is John telling us in this pictorial language? The world is ending, right? The whole world is falling apart, so to speak. Stars are falling out of the sky and gale force winds are, are forcing figs to drop to the ground. The sky is disappearing. What's he saying? It's over. All the mountains and islands are moved from their places. That's a colorful way of saying the world as we know it is coming to an end. John uses the same imagery later in Revelation to describe the end. We already saw, right? The seventh trumpet signals the end with an earthquake, just like here. And the seventh trumpet picks up the picture of the islands and mountains being dislocated. Here's what it says Chapter 16. Chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 20. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. That's that's not the world continuing as normal, is it? (laughs) John's clearly telling us it's the end. The fleeing islands and absent mountains testify that life as we know it is over. In the same way, the great white throne judgment that takes place at the end of history, Revelation chapter 20, after the beast, false prophet, and devil are cast into the lake of fire. And the final judgment begins with the words, then I saw a great white throne. This is Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Here it is in islands and mountains that flee, but the thought is similar. Now the earth and sky, they're gone. The final judgment has arrived. John says the same thing in Revelation 21, verse 1. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And since the end is at hand, those who are unsaved are filled with terror, from the most powerful general to the poorest slave. They look for refuge Wherever they can, in caves and in rocks and among the the mountains. And they fear final judgment more than death because they cry out to be crushed by the mountains and the rocks and ask to be hidden from the terrible face of God who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. John here picks up the majestic language of Isaiah 2 who speaks there of the day of the Lord. And he says, on that day of the Lord, people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. I think, just a little word I'm going to throw in here, I think too often we don't talk about the final judgment anymore because we have the image or experience from a previous generation that we thought talked about it too much. But it's a regular theme in the scriptures, isn't it? That there is a final judgment, and it will be terrifying. So we ought to preach it and teach it, brothers and sisters. People need to know who are unbelievers... They may think we're very dogmatic, but that's okay, and closed-minded or even mean and evil, but that's okay. We ought to preach and teach. A judgment is coming, and it will be terrible if you're not in a right relationship with God. It's going to be terrible. Hosea 10.8, they shall say to the mountains, and John alludes to this, doesn't he, here? They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Jesus picked up that language of Hosea as well and predicting the final judgment in Luke chapter 23, verse 30. So we see another example where a judgment in history becomes a type or a forecast of that final judgment. Did you notice, incidentally, that God and the Lamb are put on the same level here? The Lamb, Jesus, is equal in dignity and stature with God. That is something Revelation emphasizes over and over again. The Christology of this book is amazingly high. And also, did you notice that the Lamb is wrathful? Lambs aren't wrathful. At least I don't think of lambs as wrathful. But this one is, at this time, right he was slain as a lamb, but now he's full of wrath. For the day of the Lord has come, the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? So John thinks here the day of the Lord. The prophets say it's a day of destruction. Isaiah thirteen six, darkness and gloom. Amos five eighteen, wrath and fierce, fierce anger. Isaiah thirteen nine. And a day when the kings on earth will be punished, Isaiah 4, 24, 21. So in the Old Testament, the days of the Lord often point forward to a final, to a, to a judgment in history, but they also point forward to the final judgment, to the great day of the Lord. Old Testament writers reflected on the day of God's anger, asking, who can endure the day of God's great an awesome anger. Joel 2.31 or Malachi 3.2 Who can endure the day of His coming and who can stand when He appears? Don't think there won't be a final judgment. Don't be deluded into thinking that the great day of wrath will not come. It will come. It will come. And God will make everything right. And those who have trusted in Jesus will be vindicated on that day. Indeed, the sixth seal answers the prayers voiced by the martyrs in the fifth seal, doesn't it? How long? How long, O Lord? Well, until the final day. And that day is coming. God is just. God is righteous. He will vindicate his own. So who can be spared? Only those who have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Only those who persevere until the end. Caves won't help anyone on the day of judgment. So I close by saying, when suffering and pain come on because of our faith, hang on, hang on. A new day is coming. Are you suffering? The sun will shine again. If not in this life, forever and ever. The sun's gonna shine. The clouds of suffering, they're gonna vanish forever. They're gonna be forgotten. You almost forget there's clouds in Phoenix, don't you? Although I did see, although I did see some today. So let's pray. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Let's pray. Father, what a comfort it is to know that you rule and reign over history with all the mess that it is, with all the suffering, the wars, the famines, death and devastation. Lord, with the persecution of your people, the discrimination against those who are yours, the hatred that is shown to those who love Jesus Christ. But Lord, you reign, you rule, you will triumph, you will vindicate your own. Help us, Lord, to rest and to wait and to be confident and to be full of faith because we serve We serve a sovereign and triumphant God. We pray this in his name. Amen.